From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Molly Shannon. As a cast member of Saturday Night Live, she was best known for her character, the Catholic schoolgirl, Mary Catherine Gallagher. She co-starred in HBO's The White Lotus and co-stars in a new series with another SNL alum, Vanessa Bayer. Shannon has written a new memoir. We'll talk about the tragic as well as the wonderful turning points in her life. Also, we'll hear from writer Delia Efren. Her new memoir about second chances is about falling in love after her husband died and soon after learning she had the same disease that killed her sister, Nora Efren. Delia survived. And Ken Tucker will review the new album by the duo he describes as indie rock's newest obsession. Like most fans of my guest Molly Shannon, I got to see her first on Saturday Night Live. She became known for her characters, the Catholic schoolgirl, Mary Catherine Gallagher, the brassy dancer, Sally O'Malley, whose catchphrase was, I am 50, and the co-host with Anna Gasteyer of the public radio show, Delicious Dish. She joined SNL in 1995 and stayed for six seasons. Shannon starred in the film Year of the Dog, co-starred in the HBO series Enlightened and The White Lotus, all created by Mike White, co-stars in the current HBO Max comedy series The Other Two, and will co-star in the new Showtime series I Love That For You, which premieres later this month, starring SNL alum Vanessa Bayer. Shannon's new memoir, called Hello, Molly, helps explain the pain and loss that fueled a lot of the drive and commitment in her comedy career. The book begins when she was four, and her father was driving the family home from her cousin's high school graduation party. Her father had been drinking at the party and crashed into a pole. Her mother, her three-year-old sister, and a cousin were killed. Her six-year-old sister had a concussion. Molly had a broken arm. Their father was hospitalized with a tube in his throat so he could breathe and two crushed legs. Before the accident, Molly Shannon's mother taught her how to make friends. Apparently, she makes friends very easily. By the time I finished the book, I wanted to be one of those friends. But I'll settle for an interview. Molly Shannon, such a pleasure to have you on our show. I really love your memoir. Thank you, Terry. Is the accident something you talked much about before writing the book? Uh, yes, I did talk about it. Not right away. It would have to be somebody who I'm pretty close to. But I, I yeah, so, but sometimes if you give that information too quickly, it's, it's can be confusing or too much for people. But certainly as I would get to know somebody, yes, I would be open about talking about that. You were um, unconscious after the accident. Do you remember what you saw when you came to you? Yeah, I just remember there were sirens and I could hear a lot of people talking and a large crowd stopped and formed around the car and people were helping, you know, trying to pull people out of the car. And they put my sister, Mary and I, on a stretcher. And I remember feeling her body next to mine and uh, they put a blanket over us and it felt really itchy. And I just remember being confused, like, what is going on? And we had been sleeping in the back of the station wagon, and then they took us to the hospital, and they cut our clothes off, and they brought us in and gave us all these tests, like, are the lights on or the lights off? And touching parts of our body to make sure, you know, we could feel our feet and different different things like that, a lot lot of tests. 
In the hospital, you kept asking for your mother, and no one would explain that she had died. Your aunts and uncles didn't know how to tell you. Your father was in the hospital with a tube in his throat in a different room. How were you finally told? What happened was that night, too, I was four, so I had I was in training underwear, and I remember not wanting to go to the bathroom in my bed, and I was calling for my mom, but nobody would come, and then I was like, oh, whatever. I just, I felt despairing, and I wet myself, and I just kind of gave up, and then we woke up in the morning, and there were people coming in with gifts and, you know, lots of toys, and there were relatives, but I was like, where's my mom? You know, where's Katie? Where's my dad? Like... And I, I would, I looked to my sister to be kind of my guidepost, but she was just looking out the window and, and, you know, crying, you know? So I just was like, in my head, I made up, oh, my mom must be with Katie in the baby section. Maybe she has, you know, maybe Katie's on a different floor with the babies. My little sister was three. And then finally, I think an aunt did tell us that, that my mom and my sister had had died. She said, they've gone, they've gone to heaven. You know, like it was really like good news, you know? I don't know if when I was four, I knew what death was. Um, did you know what death was? No, I did not understand at all. And my immediate feeling was like, what? Like, it just, it was very confusing. And um, she was trying to make it kind of positive, like they're in heaven, you know, they're with God and the angels. And and I was just like, well, I, I felt like, well, could, could we go see them? Could we, could we fly there? Or could we take a hot air balloon? Or could we like go up with the birds? Like, can, can we see them? Like, I just couldn't accept it. And then I just wouldn't really believe it. And I went into a fantasy just waiting for them to come back, making up that they were still somewhere else, still alive. I don't think I could have felt how sad it was because I think it would have annihilated me. I think you also felt that your mother and your younger sister had gone to heaven, but they didn't think enough of you to take you with them. Yeah. Did that thinking, that thought that you weren't good enough to be taken, um, did that affect your self-image for a long time? Yes, it did. I felt I felt very defective, and I felt like, well, they must, my mom must have left because I'm bad. You know, I, I think children at that age are very self-centered, so there's no way that I could understand it other than just being very self-focused and thinking, I must have done something wrong to make her leave. So I must be bad. Your father had to become the primary parent, but, you know, his legs were crushed. He wore, I think he wore a leg brace for the rest of his life. Yes. Um, and it took him a long time to recover. It took him a long time to be able to walk again. You stayed with, uh, with an aunt and uncle for a while. Um, so suddenly your father was like the single parent of two young children still recovering from his own injuries. Um, did he know how to be a primary parent? Did, was he able to learn how to do that? That was really hard because he was in the hospital for a long time and then recuperating my aunts, he had to learn how to walk again. And he had a walker that he used for, I think, like the first year to just slowly learn how to walk around her living room and then a brace on his leg. So that recovery was slow. And then we finally moved back to our, our original house. And um, yeah, it was hard for him. He would he would get stressed out about cleaning and and 
you know, cooking, but he was a very hands-on, full-time parent. He was able to be with us all the time. He um, he invested in double houses in Cleveland, so he would go and collect the rent, but he could take us to school and be home after school and take me to piano lessons. And, you know, so he did do a, a really good job. He was very mischievous in ways that didn't always <laughs> seem healthy to me when I was reading your book. Yeah. Like, yes. he, he, He'd take you to a store, and then to make you laugh, he'd undress the mannequins and throw their wigs on the floor. And I thought, like, gee, that's really a childish thing to do that's not setting a very good example for— Yes, it was not. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So uh, looking back at it in retrospect, what do you make of that? Well, that particular example, yeah, that was a little crazy, but he would want to make us laugh. So he would, he had a lot of fun parenting. He was silly. Like he would turn a lot of stuff into a g- games. Like if we went to a candy store, just my dad and me, he would say, Molly, let's, how about if we pretend when we go into the store that I'm blind? And I was like, okay. So everything was like a, like a game. So he would go, is this chocolate? And he would knock the chocolate down. It was funny. It was a lot of times it was, it was fun. He was very silly and wild. He thought stowing aboard an airplane would be great fun. And you said, and I think you were 12, and you said, oh, I'm going to do that. And he said, I dare you. And you actually did it with your best friend and then flew from Ohio to New York. You had no money. You had no place to stay. (laughs) That was crazy. That was crazy. Yes, he had dared us, and he never thought we would pull it off. And it was like one summer day, and we thought, let's go try to do it. And we told my friend Anne's brother, Tom, we're going to try to hop a plane. He's like, you're never going to get away with that. Yeah, and Anne was 11 and I was 12. And we thought, well, if it doesn't work to hop a plane, we'll go take a ballet class with Mr. Martin, our ballet teacher. So we had pink leotards on and, and pink skirts. And we looked like little prima ballerinas. And we took the rapid transit in Cleveland out to the Cleveland Hopkins Airport. And we saw two flights, one to San Francisco, one to New York. And we were like, let's go to New York. And, you know, this is like 1976. So it was before there was any security. So we went right up to the gate. And we just looked so innocent with our hair and bun and our little pink leotards and pink tights and pink skirts. And we said, "Could we? would, would it be okay if we go say goodbye to my sister on the plane? And she was like, sure, ladies, go ahead. So we sprinted down the runway and then we ducked down in a seat and put our heads down. And then the stewardess had given us permission to get on, forgot about us. And then all of a sudden you could see the plane backing up and getting ready to take off. And we didn't say anything. We were just silent, holding one another's hands saying Hail Marys, like, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou, amongst women, blessed fruit of thy And then you see the plane go up into the air, and we couldn't believe it. We were overjoyed. And then the stewardess who'd given us permission to get on the plane came around to ask for, you know, snack orders. And um, when she saw us, Terry, she was like, she looked like she was going to faint. She said, can I get you ladies something to drink? And um, we were like, sure, I'll have a Coke, i peanuts. And then, you know, we just enjoyed the flight. Uh, we were very afraid when we landed that we were going to get busted. But um, we didn't. We, and it, the flight was not, it was a pretty empty flight. We, so we walked down the, the, you know, the aisle and to exit. And she was just at the front. She looked like she was in a daze, so scared. And she was just like, bye, ladies. Have a nice trip. <laughs> that was it. We were in New York City, you know. But this sounds like, you know, preparation for sketch comedy. You know, you, you, you pretend to be something that you're not, and people believe you. Exactly, and people believed us. And, we, and it was a great adventure. 
and it was fun because my dad had kind of, my dad had dared us, you know, he said, what a, what a stunt that would be. So when we got to New York City, I just heard about Rockefeller Center on television. So we just asked strangers, how do you get to Rockefeller Center? And um, it's funny that I would wind up years later working at Rockefeller Center. But um, we just took the the subway, we had to walk to the subway from JFK. And then we just, you know, we didn't, we only had a few dollars in a bag and a change of clothes. So we just hopped over the turnstile. And then we went to a diner and dined and dashed. And we stole I Love New York t-shirts. And it was just, it was a really fun day. And then we did call my dad and he couldn't believe it. Then he really did get nervous. He goes, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And he called Jolene Ramped and she broke out in cold sores. And and then my dad said, you know what? I, I'll tell you what, Mary and I will drive to New York City and we'll come meet you from Cleveland. And and so then he thought, why don't you just stay in the lobby and I'll try to get a hotel room and we'll, we'll meet you this evening. We'll drive right now. And so he called hotels, but they nobody wanted to be responsible for two minors without a parent. And so they kept saying no. And he said, I'll be there if you could just wait in the lobby. And they and they all said no. So the, eventually he said, all right, you got to come back home tonight and, and try to hop on a plane home. I'm not paying for it. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Is that what you did? We did. We, we we went back out to the airport, and this time the flights were all very crowded. So we were at JFK, and we found a flight back to Cleveland and did the same stunt, told the stewardess we had to say goodbye to my sister. And this time it just did not work because the flight was sold out. And um, people would say, excuse me, this is my seat. And we kept getting – so we, we gave up. That was not working, and we did call him from the airport, and he, he did get us two tickets home, and he paid for it. And he said, all right, I'll pay for it, but you have to pay me back with your babysitting money. I'm also trying to picture the two of you, you and your best friend, walking around Manhattan in your tutus, <laughs> in your 12-year-old tutu. <laughs> exactly. It was like two little prima ballerinas on a crime spree in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> My guest is Molly Shannon. Her new memoir is called Hello, Molly. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and Ken Tucker will review the new album by the duo he describes as indie rock's newest obsession. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with Molly Shannon, who became famous as a cast member on SNL. She co-stars in the HBO series The White Lotus and in the new HBO Max series The Other Two. She co-stars in the Showtime comedy series I Love That For You, which will premiere later this month. She plays a home shopping cable host who's mentoring the character played by SNL alum Vanessa Bayer. Molly Shannon has a new memoir. It's called Hello, Molly. You introduced your father to the folks on Saturday Night Live. They got to know each other. It sounds like people really liked your father a lot. I think it was through your agent, who was gay, that you found out your father was gay. So how did he know, but you didn't? Stephen Levy, my longtime manager, his father died when he was young. He developed a close connection with my father, and uh, my dad became kind of a surrogate dad to him, and they would talk on the phone a lot. And Stephen said to my dad, Jim, you're gay. You're gay. And my dad was, oh, I probably am. So Stephen would, you know, send him gay porn. And, you know, my dad was, oh my God, he was like, wrap it, wrap it up in a paper bag in case somebody opens it. And, you know, he's like, what, 72 at this point. And so my dad showed up for my last SNL. It was my very last week. And I think 
at the time he had cancer but wasn't telling anyone. And so he, he had been sober for a while. He was a recovering alcoholic, but he slipped that time coming into New York and he flew into New York and stopped at the bar at the Grand Central and got drunk and then he showed up to my apartment. And I, I was so disappointed in him because I was, this is my last week of the show and I was like, you're drunk. And, and then I kicked my dad out of my apartment and made him stay in a hotel. And, and then I talked to Steven and my manager and I said, oh, I'm so upset. He was drinking. I'm just disappointed and it's stressful. It's my last week. And Steven kept defending my father. He said, you know, he's given up so much for you girls. And I was like, what do you mean? He's given up so much. And then I said, are you saying he's gay? And he was like, he, he, I don't want to say anything. He's going to tell you. And I couldn't believe it, Terry. I was like, what? And um, my dad and I ended up making up the next day. And because I had this new information, all the pieces of the puzzle from my childhood of like the anger and, you know, some of the acting out came together. And I, I, I felt compassion. I was like, oh my God, he's gay. Oh my God. Oh my God. It felt like a flooding in of understanding, compassion. This new information blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. You know, your manager told you that your father was going to tell you that he was gay, but your father didn't tell you. So you ended up asking him if he was gay, asking your father. Um, did you like rehearse that in your mind, like how you were going to go about asking him this question that risked making him so uncomfortable because he had withheld it from you so long? I was so scared to ask him, Terry. And it was interesting because I kept waiting for him to tell me this. So that last SNL show, my dad came to the party at the Hudson Hotel and talked to Lorne and was just the bell of the ball, the life of the party, talking to Marcy Klein and was so happy and proud of me. And I was waiting for him to tell me and we had the best time and he got to see my last show. But he still didn't tell me. And I'm like, God, he hasn't told me yet. And Stephen's like, he's going to tell you, he's going to tell you. Then I invited him out for a press junket for this movie I did with Kate Beckinsale called Serendipity. And I said, come out to the Four Seasons. And we were at the pool one day. And he still hadn't told me. And we were just having a wonderful time. And we went and sat in lounge chairs by the pool. And I just thought, I'm going to be brave and ask the million-dollar question that only a daughter can ask a parent when they're still alive. And I said, have you ever thought you might be gay? And I remember like I said it so slowly that I it was like a ticker tape of like a plane, like oh, take a deep breath. And then it was like a pause and he was like, most definitely. And I was like, what? What did you just say? It's like almost like you can't hear what they're saying. Most definitely, most, de- oh my God, what a relief. And then we ended up talking about it, Terry, for the next 72 hours. We, we drove to Ojai and we went to Caro's Diner and, and I just got to ask him every question I ever would want to ask. And I said, did mommy know? And he told me. And I said, when did you know that you were gay? And he's like, oh, Molly, I knew in grade school I'd go on double dates and I would look at the boy and I, I like this 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 one boy who was from Poland and I liked the way he his hand held a cigarette. He looked so manly. And I, I would look at the JCPenney catalogs and see the macho men in their undershirts. And and I was like, oh, well, did, you know, so we had this open conversation and and I said, did you ever, you know, hook up with anyone? He was like, yeah, you know, I would be on sales trips and businessmen would give me their cards and I'd be like, oh, no, like kind of mad, but intrigued, but mad. And, and then he said he would get action truck stops as men who were closeted in that at that time did. And I was happy for him. And 
it was such an honor that he came out to me, and I think it was a relief for him to be able to tell me. And he died six, like six months later. You were with him when he died? Yeah. And you write that it was so good to be able to be there with him and for him because your mother was taken away from you so abruptly in the car accident when you were four. Um, were you able to talk or was he like not really you know, conscious or able to speak by then? Yeah, he was able to talk and, and he was in the hospital. He had, he had slipped at a wedding and cracked his femur. He was stone sober, but you know, he, he didn't call us when he was in the hospital. My aunt Bernie called, she said, you better come. He's in the hospital. And you know, he had prostate cancer. So his bones were compromised from the treatment. Before he died, we had a long phone conversation after he came out to me where he was like, you're my lucky star, Molly. I want you to know having you and Mary was the best thing I ever did. And I said, I know, I understand that. He didn't want me to think that he regretted having children. Right. But anyhow, on his deathbed, he gave us advice. He told you know me, go on, get married, have children. I think you will, you will have great joy with that. And then he also said, you know, also, don't ever underestimate a good small part in a movie. I had done this movie called Analyze This with Billy Crystal, where I just did one scene where I played his patient, Caroline, who was going through a breakup and really crying. And my dad loved that scene. So on his deathbed, he was, you know, saying his goodbyes. And we were like, will you watch over us from heaven? And he was like, indeed. And he said, don't cry for me because I'm going to be okay. He was very, he believed in an afterlife and he was not afraid. And then he said he was taking oxygen. And so about this movie, Analyze This, he took an inhale and he was like, <gasps> giving, giving me advice. He said, small parts. And we were like, uh-huh, small parts, trying to make out what he was saying. Then he took another inhale of oxygen. <gasps> and then he said, in movies. And we were like, yes, in movies. And then he said, <gasps> Like, analyze this. And we were like, like, analyze this. And then he died after that. I'm not kidding. Dead. <laughs> that was his last bit of advice. <laughs> he really wanted to be an actor too, right? He, he did. He really wanted to be an actor. He wished he would have been an actor. And he loved the movies and Judy Garland and Rosalind Russell. And he would have liked to have gone to the Cleveland Playhouse, and, and he loved writing, and I use a lot of his writing in the book, and yes, he, he said he didn't have the confidence, so in a lot of ways, I went and did that for him, and I kind of wanted to give him that life, and he got to live that life and see that through me, and it was deeply gratifying. Um, to change the mood a little bit, do you still watch Saturday Night Live? I do. I just had dinner with Lorne. I'm still so close to him. And yes, I still watch it. My favorite part of the show is the good nights. I like watching the host and all the cast. I like to think, what kind of mood are they in? And oh, look, she's talking to him and they look so happy. And now they're going to go to the party. So yeah, the good nights are my favorite. And I really enjoy it. And I just have such great feelings about the show. And I just, I still am so grateful that I got that opportunity. Molly Shannon, it has just been wonderful to talk with you. I'm so grateful you've come on our show. Terry, thank you so much. This is such an honor to talk to you. You are one of my favorites. And thank you so much. Molly Shannon's new memoir is called Hello, Molly. Over the summer, you may have heard a catchy little song called Chaise Long. 
It's been streamed more than 5 million times on Spotify. It was the debut release from Wet Leg, two women in their mid-twenties from the Isle of Wight who've come out of nowhere to become indie rock's newest obsession. The band has just released its debut album, also called Wet Leg, and rock critic Ken Tucker says it's full of clever entertainment. I need to lie down, only just got up. I feel so uninspired, I feel like giving up. I feel like someone has punched me in the guts, but I kind of like it because it feels like being In the song that opens their debut album, the duo called Wet Leg describes being in love as like taking a punch in the gut. And these two young women spend the next 11 songs proving they really take romance hard, but not always seriously. The outstanding example of this is their breakout hit, Shays Long, an instantly catchy song that's either a sustained bit of risque double entendre or a sweet feat of silly stream of consciousness. from the Isle of Wight. Rianne Teasdale sings lead and plays rhythm guitar. Hester Chambers plays lead guitar and supplies harmony backup vocals. A couple of years ago, they decided to take their friendship to a professional level via songs with a post-punk drive. Indeed, the songs are driven less by the couple of chords per song Chambers plays on the guitar than by Teasdale's vocals. Those are notably expressive, given the fact that she also does her best to convey a certain poker-faced blankness. Wetleg writes casually but explicitly about sex, which is important to them, even if the guys are frequently annoying or worse. In the song Loving You, Teasdale makes it clear that, post-breakup, she doesn't want to be friends and she doesn't want to be mature about it. She really just wants him to get lost.
their best, Teasdale's soaring soprano floats above Chambers' rumbling guitar riffs to achieve a pleasing tension, whimsy that barely disguises underlying anger or frustration. I like the leap of thought it took these women to express how terribly mediocre a boyfriend has turned out by musing that this fellow must be a grave disappointment to his mother. When I think At this point in their career, we don't know whether Wet Leg is a band with staying power or a very good feminist novelty act. But this debut does prove that Teasdale and Chambers possess the instincts of canny entertainers, ones who already know how to hook you in to their prickly, raunchy, witty way of looking at the world. Ken Tucker reviewed the new album, Wet Leg. Coming up, we hear from writer Delia Efren. Her new memoir is about falling in love after her husband died, and soon after, learning she had the same disease that killed her sister, Nora Efren. This is Fresh Air Weekend. My next guest, Delia Efren, writes that when she fell in love with her husband, Peter Rutter, when she was 72, she thought she'd fallen into her own romantic comedy. She writes them for a living. With her sister, Nora Efren, she wrote the film You've Got Mail and was a contributing writer to Nora's screenplay, Sleepless in Seattle. But the romantic comedy of Delia's own life was circumscribed by death. Nora met Peter, a psychiatrist and Jungian psychotherapist, through a New York Times op-ed she wrote relating to the recent death of her husband, screenwriter Jerry Cass. They'd been married over 30 years. Peter read the op-ed, felt there were many confluences between Delia's story and his own, and got in touch. That's how the relationship started. Delia was still recovering from the death of her husband and the death five years earlier of her sister Nora, who had a particularly virulent kind of leukemia that runs in families. Delia was diagnosed with it just a few months after she and Peter fell in love. The treatment nearly killed her. There's enough bad news in this world, so I'll tell you right at the start that Delia not only survived, it's very unlikely she'll have a recurrence. Her marriage to Peter survived the ordeal, too. Delia Efren's new memoir is called Left on Tenth, A Second Chance at Life. She lives on Tenth Street in Greenwich Village. Delia Efren, welcome back to Fresh Air. I'm so glad you're well. I'm assuming you're well. How are you feeling? Yes, I am. I feel just fine. Thank you. Good. The last time we talked was in 2013, and we talked about the death of your sister, Nora. And now I've just read about your near death from the same illness. But before we get to that, let's start with the romantic comedy part. Your husband, Peter, 
found you through an op-ed that you'd written in the New York Times after your husband Jerry had died, and he had had prostate cancer. He had a terminal diagnosis for six years before his death. The cancer had spread to his bones. Jerry was a writer, too. He wrote the book for the Broadway musical Ballroom, which was adapted from his teleplay for Queen of the Stardust Ballroom. So would you describe the op-ed that you wrote in the New York Times that got Peter's attention? Oh, my goodness. I was just trying to disconnect my late husband's phone, Jerry's phone, and I got into such a battle with the phone company. Um, And so I was on the phone with them for hours, and I'm getting disconnected, and I'm having to obey their prompts, and I'm, like, absolutely losing my mind. And, of course, I'm grieving at the same time. So, you know, I did what I do. I, I wrote a funny piece about it for the New York Times about losing my mind over my husband's death and Verizon. So six months later, I got an an email from Peter. So he wrote and reminded me that we had had a, well, we're still arguing about whether it was two dates or three dates, because I don't remember it at all, but that we'd had, let's say, two dates 54 years before, when I was 18 years old. And Nora had fixed us up. So that's, you know... That was kind of amazing. I mean, there were so many strange confluences. And uh, I wrote him back. I hoped it was charming. And we started to write. And almost within minutes, we fell in love. It was like like we were waiting to meet each other. So when he wrote you the first email, did you believe him? Did you believe that your sister Nora had set you up on a date together when you were 18, you had no memory of that. Well, first of all, he, he writes a very lovely email, and I'm pretty good at reading things like that. So I completely believed it, and he told me the circumstances. He'd worked at Newsweek as an intern in the sports department, and she had been on the clip desk, which was absolutely true. And he knew I'd been to Conn College, which most people didn't know. I've spent two years there before going to Barnard. I mean, everything was... And then I, of course, Googled him like crazy, and it turned out he had written two books on sexual harassment. So I thought, oh, my gosh. I mean, and he did not mention that. I mean, Peter spent a decade in the 80s defending abused women in court. So I Googled him, and, and he seemed like a marvelous, substantive man, is what he seemed like, a substantive man. So we started to communicate, and it was as if we'd been waiting to know each other. It, it, was, it was falling in love the way I had fallen in love with Jerry 32 years before. I want to talk to you about falling in love at age 72. You're right, it's as if the universe had given us a gift to experience all the madness and thrill of falling in love at a time in our lives when that was supposed to be over. And then you write, too, that you enjoyed sex together. And then you write, I want to apologize for even mentioning sex. No one wants to hear about two 72-year-olds getting it on. In a movie... If you have two 72-year-olds simply kissing, you want the camera far away. (laughs) So um, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to fall in love at the age of 72, you know, emotionally and physically? First of all, I think, because I'd had so much loss and pain, the experience of being in love was, it was like the sun was shining on me. And I think that romantic feeling that, passion that you get 
which was exactly the same. Not, not when I was in my 20s when I couldn't tell a good guy from a bad guy, but when I had gotten smart in my 30s and was, you know, good about figuring out who was someone to date and everything. It was like then. It was like that time of my life when it was just so... It just took all the pain that I had been feeling, all that loss, and it just erased it for a while. It was incredible. And But the thing is, you know, if you fall in love in your 70s, I mean, death is right there in front of you. You can reach out and touch it. So there's a kind of defiance if you fall in love. It's a defiance of that, as well as a, a sense of madness. Am I really doing this? I mean, this could be all over, you know, tomorrow from just the fact that we're old. It's a different thing. But, oh, I'll tell you one really thing I think is so important. In many ways, it's easier to fall in love in your 70s because you know who you are. You're not trying to have a career or trying to have children or trying to find, you know, all these other things you want besides a mate, maybe this particular kind of house or that particular earning money. I mean, all these things that you're trying to juggle but it's complicated in part because, like, your husband had died, what, about a year earlier? And and you felt uncomfortable getting into another relationship. You even felt a little guilty about it, like maybe you were betraying him. Can you talk about that a little bit? I felt guilty after Jerry died. I just began to second-guess things. I write a lot about that, you know, that, that I... I mean, I went to I went to this one doctor, and he said, "Where did your husband die of?" And I said, "Oh, he died of um, prostate cancer." And he said, "Well, what kind of treatment did he have?" And I said, "Well, he had radiation." He said, "Oh, that's why he died." The doctor said that, and so I thought, "Oh my God, I didn't guide Jerry properly. He didn't have the right treatment, you know." And then my close friend John, who's a doctor, said to me, "That's that's ridiculous. That's the same treatment I gave to my father, and he got cured." You know, it was like. People would say things and it would trigger guilt. Guilt that maybe I hadn't made every right move as a wife. And I, I suspect, you know, because I, I, I really did write about that, because I, I, think, I think it's hard when you're the survivor to feel that you did everything. Well, it was for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've met people who cared for their spouses during a long illness who say, They couldn't get involved in another relationship and risk going through that kind of pain again. Um, And, I mean, how much did you worry about that? Well, we sure talked about it. I said to Peter, you know, I I give you total permission. If I get sick, I give you total permission to leave me. And he said, I could never do that. It was just like, that's who I am. You know, it was like, I could never do that. And I was, of course, being a little jokey, but nevertheless... It was, you know, a true thing. And you have to, you know, tell people. I mean, I said to him, you know, I'm being, I'm being checked for leukemia because Nora had leukemia. And, you know, something in my marrow isn't quite normal, but they don't know if it's going to mean anything or not. And he said he did not care. Um, everyone's different. I was open to it. I fell in love. And I'm, I mean, life with Peter is, well, I wouldn't even be here if it weren't for Peter. I mean, there's no question about that, because four months after I fell in love, I got leukemia. And he did not leave you. I mean, he was so steadfast. Oh, my goodness, no. In fact, he proposed. (laughs) He proposed that weekend. After you were diagnosed. Yeah, 
Yeah, he flew east that night, and uh, we were having, we were in the kitchen, and I was making French toast, and I was just reeling. I mean, it's very, getting a diagnosis like that, and it's a fatal diagnosis when you get it. I mean, it really is, and Peter said, uh, he's like sitting at the table, and he said, we should get married, and then he sort of hurt himself. And I, I looked over, I mean, I was, had my spatula in my hand, and, and he said, he just popped up out of his chair. He said, will you marry me? And I said, yes. And, you know, the next thing, you know, on Monday we went and got a license and we bought a ring, and on Tuesday I checked into the hospital for my first chemo. Mm. You got married in the hospital by the hospital chaplain. We did. My, my friend Jessie presided. She gave a lovely little ceremony. I just had a few friends there who knew that I was sick. And um, and then and the hospital chaplain, uh, Reverend Cheryl Fox, she signed the papers and read the, she read the vows that Peter wrote. So your husband, Peter, stuck by you. He handled so much of the medical information. You were afraid to find out too much about your condition, about your blood count numbers, about what the treatment was going to be. You were afraid that you'd panic. Can you tell us why you were afraid of panicking and what you thought the panic would lead to? Well, I, I am a panicker. I just <laughs> want to say that temperamentally I can spin things bigger and crazier in a second. And, um, I mean, I think it comes from having had alcoholic parents and always thinking if you're looking left, something's coming at you from the right, that there was not any real stability in my home after I was about 11 years old. So I think that's where that temperament comes from. But when I got sick, I wasn't a different person temperamentally. I still knew that I needed not to have the details, that they would just make me upset. They would just panic me. And, I mean, you don't turn into a different person when you get sick, I mean, temperamentally or anything. So I told my doctors, don't tell me that much. My Dr. Robos, Gail Robos, said, um, she heard me, and she, she never weighed me down with statistics, with, you know, worries. I mean, you can make choices about how you go through, but I was comforted. Because I knew Peter understood it all. You'd watch your sister Nora die of the same form of leukemia that you had. What were your fears about dying like she did? I mean, obviously you were afraid of dying, but you saw the struggle she went through when she was dying, the the suffering that she endured. So what frightened you most when you thought about her death? Well, I just really thought that I mean, when I was with her in the hospital and they were tracking me then, I mean, they'd been tracking me for 10 years by the time I met Peter. Um, when I was in the hospital, it was like staring my own death in the face. You know, I was thinking, this, is, this, could, be, this could be you. There was always there during all that time of her illness. And I was a match for her. I was a, you know, if she'd wanted to have a a bone marrow transplant as I did, she could use me as a match. Actually, I realize I'm slowing down because it's getting difficult to talk about. Uh, some things were easier to write than to talk about, and that is one of them. And I think, you know, that 
I knew she didn't want to have a bone marrow transplant. It's quite brutal. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I speak from experience because I had it. But um, one of the things about being as sisters is that she was the firstborn. I was second. I have two younger sisters, Hallie and Amy. There are four of us. We're all writers. That was the family business, and we all went into it, and we were all published writers. And But Nora came first, and she was like, just like shot, like a shot she was. She was going around the track so fast, no one could keep up with her. And I was, of course, trying to do everything she did, but I couldn't keep up. And it wasn't until I became a writer that I, you know, writing is your fingerprint. Nobody else can do that exactly what you see in the world. And that was when I really began to understand who I was separate from her. But when I got the same disease, there was no way in my head that I could think I wasn't going to die too. And my doctors, they just got it. They understood it. They said to me, you are not your sister. And what they meant was, under a microscope, my leukemia was different from her leukemia. That's what they meant. That was actually the truth. And I tried to just keep in my head, you are not your sister, you're not your sister, but it felt like betrayal. Here you are in a new marriage. You are at your absolute lowest. Your, your hair has fallen out. You can barely move. You're not responsive to the doctor's questions because you're barely alive at that point at, when you were really, really at the bottom um, after your immune system was killed off by the chemo so that the bone marrow transplant could take. Um, so you're in a new marriage while you are at your worst mentally, physically, emotionally. You're in a deep depression. Are you amazed that your marriage survived, that your new marriage survived this? No, I'm not. But that's because I know Peter. We were all in. And Peter made me feel beautiful even when I looked like an old rag. I mean, he just did. And I felt so cared for. And I, I mean, there was that period when I was so sick and I, I didn't know. I really wanted to die then. And I, I didn't feel anything for anybody. But that lifted. And when it lifted, we were back. We were back. Do you think that you're both different people than who you were when you met before you got sick? There is no question that I can't believe I'm here on some level. I think I try to be nicer to everyone. When I was that person on the street with a walker and in a wheelchair, I realized that I had never had the kind of compassion and understanding that I have now for people who many of us will be there. I think that, you know, being in love at this age is very comforting and very magical, and yet I have friends who absolutely do not want it. It's not something they're interested in. But for me, it's like, it's sustenance that we can have the fun we have together. I mean, we have a lot of fun, and that's been marvelous. Delia Efren, it's great to talk with you and hear that you are in good health, and I wish you continued good health. Thank you for coming back on our show. I greatly appreciated talking with you again. Thank you. I love being here. Delia Efren's new memoir is called Left on Tenth, A Second Chance at Life. 
Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross. 